Hi there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net minor league baseball correspondent Paul Caputo, broadcasting live, as always, from the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. Today, we're going to be talking about the Birmingham Barons in Birmingham, Alabama, of course. Later on in this episode, I'll be speaking with Mark Cheatham, a.k.a. Cheats, of the Black Baseball Mixtape podcast. And, of course, Dan Simon will be here with a Studio Simon Stumper. Right now, I'm so pleased to be joined by Jonathan Nelson, who is the general manager and the president of the Birmingham Barons. Jonathan, how are you doing? Great, Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm so excited to talk about this this classic brand for a, for a minor league baseball team. The Birmingham Barons name has been tried and true over the years. Can you tell me sort of what that name means to to Birmingham and where it comes from? Yeah, I mean, I, the Barons, you know, originally started, founded in 1885, and certainly a long history. And so I think there's a lot of things that, um, you know, obviously they, they play, the original home was the Slag Pile, a ballpark that's in West End area, and then they called Rickwood Field home from 1910 to, to 1987, and then the Hoover Met 88 to 2012, and then our current home, Regents Field, 2013 to the present day. And so there's a long history there, and and I know the original name was the Birmingham Coal Barons, and in Birmingham, uh, this city is more of an identity in the old school sort of. They, they used to call it the Pittsburgh of the South, from what I understand. All right, sort of iron, steel, ore type type uh, industry that that was really uh, a very that, that really founded the city uh, in in the early days. And so I, I'm not sure the exact timeline when they went from they dropped the coal barons, but I think that it was probably around the time when Rick Woodward purchased the team which would have been, you know, around the early, early 1900s. Yeah. And, and so there, I know that there's a, there's a rich history of baseball there. You mentioned the coal barons, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this is that there, there was the coal barons and then there was also the Negro leagues, black barons Yeah, and the, you know, the current team there, just the, the barons is sort of an homage to, to both of those. Yeah, and, and 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 certainly, you know, the Barons. Whereas you have other teams, you know, nowadays there's there's sort of cartoon names around the industry, which I know that that was sort of common back in the mid '90s, and, and it resurfaced again in recent years, which is always fun, and that's what minor league baseball is. Um, but the Barons have always sort of, you know, I've been I've been with the Barons every year, with the exception of 1997. I, th I think that sort of gauging the temperature of, of the special name of what the Barons is, I think that people take pride in that name because it's so unique in all of sports. I mean, there's really not any, I mean, you had the, the Scranton Wilkesbury Red Barons for a number of years, um, but for the most part, you've never had any kind of other Barons. So I, I think that folks in, in, in this area appreciate it, appreciate the nostalgic look with the old English B. Um, and, and, and over the years, you know, we were like any other minor league team where we've had those internal discussions multiple times. Mm -hmm. You know, do you do something, you know, sort of wacky and uh, the aqueducts or whatever it is, the trash pandas. <laughs> but I, I think for the most part, I think that while we don't look at ourselves as the Yankees, I think that former Southern League presidents along the way have always sort of said, hey, listen, you guys are the Yankees of the Southern League or whatever it is. And, mm -hmm. and, and that didn't really resonate. But I think that from our standpoint, there's more of a a, a reserved and, and more of a uh, sort of mystique maybe about the brand, the identity, and, and not really wavering too much off of it. 
So we were talking before the interview uh, about uh, some of the Barron's history, and of course, uh, that subject is impossible to discuss without bringing up Michael Jordan and the year 1994. My immediate inclination when I hear 1994 is just ugh, because I, you know, I associate it with the strike year in Birmingham. <laughs> I guess that's different because you know that was, as you mentioned, it was the year that Michael Jordan was playing baseball, and and you know they they put him in Double A, and and that landed him firmly with the Birmingham Barons. I was looking at your bio before we spoke, and I saw that you started as an intern with the Barons in 1993. Were you with the team when Michael Jordan was there? I was. It was my second year full time. And um, I mean, it, it was one of those where when I first started in baseball, 1993, it, Terry Francona's first year as a manager, um, okay. we had Ray Durham and we ended up winning the Southern League Championship in dramatic fashion. So what a baptism into baseball. Then the second year followed by Michael Jordan's, you know, famous year. And to say the very least, it was beyond memorable uh, and in a, in a lot of fun in a variety of different ways, beyond demanding. Mm -hmm. um, and it was electric every day, uh, whether the team was in, we had a home game or not. And actually, it was probably we were more busy when the team either had an off day or were on the road mm -hmm. because the demand about a variety of different things. When the team was off, um, it was very common for either Michael Jordan was either stuck in a suite at the Hoover yeah. Met signing autographs because it had an exclusive deal with Upper Deck or he was filming a commercial at the ballpark. Right. Um, so it was, there was always something going on and, and it just had a, a very different rhythm and beat. And I'm just glad back in those days, there was no internet, oh, gosh. social media, <laughs> and certainly cell phones were not commonplace either. Um, because it was, you know, we, we, most, uh, many days we couldn't make outbound calls because the, the demand, I mean, it was just, it was staggering, uh, different world, different era, um, yeah. and certainly a different player that, that, that came in, into minor league baseball. When I, I think about certain minor league teams that that have these these brushes with popular culture or these brushes with fame that are sort of external to the team itself. So I think about like the Toledo Mud Hens, you know, were popularized on the TV show MASH with Jamie Farr wearing the Mud Hens stuff. Obviously, the Durham Bulls are an example of that because of the movie Bull Durham. So, you know, I mean, you have these examples of minor league teams getting put on the map in ways that are a little bit outside their control. Here we are almost three decades after the fact talking about Michael Jordan, you know, his, his sort of unremarkable <laughs> playing career, uh, you know, on the field anyway, his sort of unremarkable playing career with a, with a double a baseball team. You've been with the team long enough to actually have firsthand memory of that. Is that something that you get tired of being asked about? Is it something that you wish everyone would just sort of move past or is it, is it, you know, one of these things that you sort of embrace as part of the identity of the team is that this was the team Michael Jordan played for. No, it definitely is embedded and will always be part of the identity. I mean, as you've mentioned, I mean, you know, the Barons had a long history, whether it be the Black Barons, the Birmingham A's, the Cole Barons, uh, or the Birmingham Barons, and, you know, the the just the the, the who's who of, of Hall of Famers that we claim, uh, whether it be Satchel Page as a Black Baron, Willie Mays as a Black Baron, Frank Thomas, Burley Grimes, Pie Trainer, Raleigh Fingers, Reggie Jackson. I mean, the, the list goes on of part of the, the long history of the Barons. But yeah. I will always say the most famous Baron of all time will always be Michael Jordan. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was one of those really fun experiences that no matter what happens, you know, you're always going to be associated with it. And I always tell the staff, even though the current staff 
the only folks on on staff right now are a radio broadcaster. He was the broadcaster. Kurt Bloom was when when Michael Jordan was here, and then myself. Mm-hmm. That was it. Um, but it's a badge of honor, to be quite honest. And you know, th- there's a there's a text that that, that me and uh, a few other folks that were part of that. We had a very small front office back then. I think that we had a total of twelve people. Now we have around thirty five people. Uh, different different world, different ballpark. But, you know, we send a text usually around somewhere at the end of March, beginning of April, where, you know, it's usually, you know, there, there's, you know, certain dates in sports where on this date, you know, they'll, there's one that always surfaces that on this date, Michael Jordan was assigned to double A Birmingham. <laughs> and it's sort of like you always hear about the uh, 1972 Dolphins, you know, right. remaining, you know, you always they do a you know, toast of champagne because they're the undefeated team when, when the, finally that one NFL team loses each season. But that's sort of symbolic of what we do, too, is because it was such a badge of honor for us. Certainly the the mystique of Michael Jordan and, you know, being recognized as the greatest player of all time. And I know that's debatable among some people, but in, in my era, he definitely is. Um, mm. But, he, you know, the thing about him, and, and, and too, is that, you know, despite the fact that I think he gets a bad rap because of statistics and all that, the, 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 the end results of what the season was. It was amazing that 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 what he did. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I saw him make diving catches and mm-hmm. hit home runs and all that. Now he wasn't the second coming of, of of the of Mike Trout or anything like right. that. But you know, for a guy that hadn't picked up a bat since middle school, I think, or maybe even the freshman year in high school, right. he held his own at the Double A level, especially being at his age of I think it was what thirty one at the time. And double A, I mean, people think, oh, minor leagues, right? But, you know, people and, and listeners of this podcast, I'm not telling them anything they don't know. Double A is really good baseball. You have to be an outstanding player at a lot of levels to reach double A baseball. So for Michael Jordan to hold his own, you know, at the double A level is, you know, is as you say, it's, it's definitely impressive. You and I spoke back in 2016 when I covered the uh, Birmingham Barons for the uh, sportslogos.net article that I wrote in my story behind the nickname series. And I was I was rereading that article earlier today, and uh, before 1901, I saw that I had a list in here of of nicknames that the team had before 1901, including the Iron Makers, the Maroons, the Grays, the Blues, the Bluebirds, uh, and and the Reds. So I'm thinking, even if you don't rebrand, there's some great like fauxback weekends you could do for sure in there because there's some some pretty great names there. I don't even know what an Iron Maker is. <laughs> it's news to me um, but, you know we did that rickwood classic for a number of years and thank goodness in recent um weeks i know major league baseball announced that there's going to be a major league game at rickwood field and and yeah. then again we're going to be playing the, the montgomery biscuits it's going to be the black barons versus the the not only not the montgomery biscuits but the homestead grays with that with that minor right. league game next year it's going to be two days prior on june 18th prior to the giants and the cardinals playing at rickwood field um, but the great thing about the Rickwood Classic all those years is that with a with the long history of the Barons, we were never short of being able to select different eras, different teams, different players, um, mm-hmm. you know, to really celebrate, honor, and salute um, with the different uniform schemes. And so, you know, even though we repeated multiple times with the Birmingham A's, which had a pretty cool uh, uniform scheme. Uh, and and the Birmingham Black Barons as well, because people obviously appreciate, respect, and and, and just absolutely love the, the Birmingham, the special place in the heart here in, in Birmingham, especially for the Black Barons. Um, it is always very special to be able to, to to look back, research, and sometimes we had a little bit of artistic, you know, um, liberty uh, in, in designing mm-hmm. some of the uniforms because of the the limited, you know, information that we had. 
Sure. Uh, yet at the same time, we had we 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 tried to stay as authentic and and true to to what the the, the uniform scheme was and and the overall theme. Well, and you know we'd be remiss if we did not talk about the the history of the Negro Leagues in Birmingham. Obviously, you have adjacent to the ballpark there. Uh, when I was in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago, a fantastic experience at the Negro Southern Leagues Museum. Uh, that was a really terrific experience. And it got not only into the history of the league, but it, into the history of Negro Leagues baseball in particular in Birmingham. I remember too that the team, that the Barons, you all did a, uh, a salute to Martin Luther King Jr. night. And you actually had a jersey that had his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail on the jersey itself. So clearly, you know, Birmingham has a rich history in the in the civil rights movement. And, you know, Negro Leagues baseball is certainly a part of that. What is that relationship between the existing Birmingham Barons, the museum, and the sort of history of civil rights in in Birmingham in general? Well, I know that when, you know, the discussion for Regents Field started um, back in around 2009, 2010, it really became public around 2011. Uh, that was always part of what would be here on the property at Regents Field. And I know that while it didn't open up in 2013, opened up a couple of years after that, I know it's been a, a tremendous addition for the overall property. And, and, and as we talked about, is that Birmingham, a long history in a variety of different leagues and, and, and the Barons, Black Barons, A's, this organization, baseball, has always played a, a significant role in this community um, in, a, in a variety of different ways. Um, so to, to have that, to be able to, to honor the, 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 the legends that, that participated in, in the Negro Leagues um, with that kind of museum is something very special. And over the years, Birmingham always had the largest contingency of living Negro League legends in America. Now, in recent years, unfortunately, Father Tom's undefeated. Uh, so, I, I, unfortunately, I know that many have passed away in, in recent years. Yet, at the same time, I know there's still a decent amount of living, living legends here in the Magic City. But something that we've always done, regardless if we saluted the, and our theme was the Birmingham Black Barons at the Rickwood, Rickwood Classic, we would always incorporate and include them and you know in in our pregame celebration introduce mm -hmm. them on the field uh have a hospitality area for them when we hosted the settling all-star game in 2009 and in 2018 i'll be honest with you we obviously there's a lot of events and fun things that go along with hosting such events like you know an all-star game like that but we always included them in in that event as well and it always brought down the house. People appreciate mm -hmm. it. And so it, we've always had a very special relationship. Um, and whether it be the actual legends who played in the Negro Leagues or whether it be their children, um, Piper Davis, who was the manager for that infamous 1948 Black Barons team, still very good friends with his daughter, yeah. Faye Davis, who worked with the Convention of Visitors Bureau for a number of years. And uh, uh, so it's 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 a very special relationship that we have. And I think that, you know, to give Major League Baseball proper credit, too, is that a few years ago, back in December, I think that they did something that was was reported, but not really covered as well as it should have been and given the credit. But when they made it an even playing field when it came to statistics um, and really, you know, saying, hey, listen, we're going to include the Negro League statistics and, and everything into the Major League records. Mm -hmm. I think that was a, a, a nice move by, and a proper move by Major League Baseball. Agreed. And that's not an easy task, right? Because that's uh, there's, you know, a lot of variables to to account for there. And so that's uh, I, I agree. That's a that's a terrific move. And I'm glad that they're they're moving forward with that. 
I want to ask you finally, and I'll, and I'll let you get out of here. You referenced Birmingham as the magic city. And uh, back in 2017, you all unveiled some very cool magic city, some, some black, white, and red magic city uh, jerseys. Can you tell me what, uh, you know, magic city means to Birmingham, Alabama, and how come the team adopted that, uh, that alternate identity? I think that, you know, what you've seen and you saw, you know, a few years prior to that, and you've seen it certainly now at the major league level, these city connect type uniforms, Mm -hmm. these themes where, you know, a variety of cities have different themes and and, and sort of sayings, you know, I'm not 100% sure of the original definition. I've heard of varying different degrees of of what, how Birmingham became the magic city. Yeah. But in selecting it, obviously we entertain a variety of different names, the the nicknames for Birmingham, but magic city became it. And, Uh and, and, and I probably told you for the original interview is that when we went back from silver and black to back black to black and red, it connected to multiple different time periods and eras for the Barons. Not only did it connect us with the era which we returned in 1981, but and even more importantly, certainly the Black Barons era as well. So that's why we went to black and red once again to sort of connect those two different eras. And the Magic City uniform scheme, we had a local advertising group here in Birmingham do it, and they really hit the mark uh, in a variety of different ways. And we actually introduced this year we went, we actually completed the uniform and introduced the black pants along with it as well. Nice. Um, and, and we wore it, I think, once, maybe twice. But unfortunately, I think that we were one pair short of the proper size for one <laughs> sort of player. And I'm not going to name them. Uh, but I think that uh, so hopefully we'll, 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 we'll get that out there next year because I think it's a nice way to compliment it. You see it at the major league level. So yeah. I think the Magic City and people take pride in it. Sure. And, and, you know, while the intent was to wear it every Thursday night, mm-hmm. uh, I think that the way players are these days, if you're winning and they like them, they want to uh-huh. wear it more often. So a few years ago, I know Zach Collins, when he was a prospect with us, um, he asked if they could wear them on the road. I said, sure, you could do it. Um, you, you don't want to, you know, sacrifice the special, you know, nature of what it is and, and wearing it once a week. But I know that for a six game homestand, it's not uncommon that we're wearing it at least three times during the homestand. Wow. And we said uh, on sportslogos.net in 2017 that the design firm was big communications. And we yes. have a quote from Matt Harris there. One of the things I really love about that Magic City uh, uniform is, you know, we were talking about the Black Barons, the the B on the cap. You've got the the black cap with the red beak, mm-hmm. and the B that references the 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 style of B uh, from the Black Barons caps as well. So that's a great great detail in in that uniform set. Well, Jonathan, I've kept you way longer than I said I was going to. I apologize for that, but such an interesting conversation and and such a rich history and uh, a story behind this brand. So I really appreciate you know you taking time out of your morning to chat with me about it. Where can people find you if you're on social media and where can uh, people find the Barons on online? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, Barons, uh, Barons.com uh, was one-stop shopping when it comes to all of our information, team store or tickets or promotions, whatever we have just about Regents Field and everything else. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Okay. Um, so it's one of those where uh, I try to stay as active as possible as well. All right. Well, those will be in the show notes and people can find you there. Jonathan, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to get to to speak with you and to, or, uh, to get to speak with you again after all these years. Now that I've been by the ballpark when you weren't playing, I got to find a way to get back there and, and see a game at Regents Field. Absolutely. Definitely. Right. Look forward to it. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll, uh, thank you. we'll talk Appreciate to you soon. It.
right, everyone. Welcome back. I am super pleased to welcome to the podcast someone who I have been following in the podcast sphere, Mark Cheatham, who goes by Cheats. I'll call you Cheats, even though it feels a little funny. I'm going to call yeah, you Cheats. Everybody calls you Cheats. It's great. Everybody calls you Cheats. Yeah. Cheats is the host of the Black Baseball Mixtape podcast, a really terrific podcast. You and I have have at least one guest uh, in common. You and I have both interviewed Bob Kendrick from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Really enjoyed your conversation with him. I really enjoyed having him on my podcast quite a bit. But you have had a litany of of, uh, really great names. Uh, What you do on the podcast, you interview folks who are uh, involved uh, with baseball, with the black baseball community, from players to front office personnel. Before we get started talking about uh, Birmingham, the, the history of black baseball in Birmingham, I do see that you're all Birminghammed up here with your Black Barons <laughs> hat and your uh, and your sweatshirt. But uh, I'd love to know just if you would, just if you could tell folks, what do you, you know, how come you started this podcast and what it is that you are, are hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah, first of all, Paul, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your show as well. And uh, I know we've interacted on on the digital spaces for quite some time but i'm a big fan of what what you do and 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 love the podcast so it's an honor to be on to answer your question it was probably a little bit over a year ago i i think once i start to look back it was about june 1st 2022 is when i officially launched the black baseball mixtape and it started mostly i mean it's digital so it started as a as a blog and youtube in november we started uploading podcast episodes and I found that there was what I believed to be a significant void in the content creation space that surrounded black culture and baseball. And so as a fan, I've been a baseball fan my entire life. I'm in my forties now and I have a young kid who's eight years old, who loves the game. And he would always be on his devices, if you will. And he would find content related to the NBA or the NFL or boxing that really merged hip-hop culture, black culture, kind of pop culture, everything that just made it really acceptable for him to gravitate to those sports. And as a baseball fan, and he likes baseball as well, I actually went searching for content that I could show my son, you know, talk about with my friends about baseball in a way that was exciting to me. And I didn't find any. If you Google, if you Google baseball players or especially black baseball Mostly you're going to get is historical context. You're going to get Negro Leagues. You're going to get Jackie Robinson. You're going to get those types of things. And as needed as they are, we both mentioned we had Bob Kendrick on the show. I love him. He's a dream, dream guest, and he does a great job with the museum. It wasn't really transferable to what was happening in my barbershop, what was happening in the in the media space. And instead of kind of sitting back and just kind of complaining about it and saying, ah, baseball is not cor- connecting to our community, I – was like what can i do i've had a history in and podcasting and digital and i launched the black baseball mixtape just as a way to give fans like me and families a way to connect kind of their experience especially if it was a an experience rooted in in black culture in the black community to contemporary baseball at every level and what i really like about your podcast i've noticed that you're you know you'll do an episode that's like 13 minutes long if there's something that needs to be talked about that needs to be discussed right and i you know i and you do the longer form interviews as well sure. and and uh, but you know you you do it differently and i think that that actually lends itself to this idea of the mixtape right like it's always going to be something a little bit different well it's funny because what i found is people connect to different things and so 
if you have a podcast like the Black Baseball Mixtape that, you know, features a really cool guest one week, but if something's happening in the game or in the culture that we really want to, it may only take eight minutes to say, hey, did you see this? Let's talk about this. And I found some of those episodes, whether it's a just kind of emergency out of circumstance, somebody did something really, really exciting in the game. Um, they they all find a way of connecting to the audience. So uh, I have discovered while a, a lot of my audience does enjoy, say, having, you know, Dave Winfield on the podcast, they also enjoy like really wanting to give me feedback and arguing with me about Ella Dela Cruz <laughs> or Ronald Acuna or Tim Anderson or Mookie Betts. So and I, one of the most random things we did, I think we did like a quick probably like it might have been two minutes or less about like, should the New York Yankees do a city connect uniform? I, remember well, I got, that one. <laughs> I got I more responses about that than you would <laughs> if you had a hall of famer on, because everybody has this uh, interesting opinion on those types of things. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a process, Paul. And I still think that it's, if, if, you know, creators, podcasters, you know, find ways to connect with the audience that that's what wins. Well, Man, I could talk about this all day, but the the reason <laughs> sure. that uh, that I've asked you to come on is because, uh, you know, I this episode is about the Birmingham Barons, and obviously one of the you know precursors to the Birmingham Barons was the Birmingham Black Barons. The Negro Southern Leagues Museum is in Birmingham, actually adjacent mm -hmm. to the ballpark there, and you know Birmingham is so important to the history of black baseball you see it at rickwood field you see it uh at the at the birmingham barons current stadium you see it with the with the museum being right there you obviously are are wearing some gear right now from the sure, black it's it's a classic i mean that the the three b's on the black hat there is a classic brand obviously from the negro leagues so you know i i wanted to have you on and just ask you about you know from your perspective as a as a a modern day podcaster and and content creator in the in the realm of black baseball sure. you know what is the what is the significance of birmingham to the history of black baseball really really deep rooted right really deep rooted as you mentioned and the birmingham black barons actually are really an interesting kind of franchise overall one of the things you already mentioned it but i think at this point it's one of the only it's probably the only negro league team where the stadium itself is probably as as relevant and as important and as significant as the team. Mm. So you mentioned Rickwood Field. Yeah. And, I, and by the time everyone's listening to this, you'll probably have already known if you haven't already. Major League Baseball just announced they're going back to Rickwood Field in June of 2024, next year. It's a game that'll feature the Giants. Um, I believe it's the Cardinals and the Giants. And it's Basically, for the last two years, three years, Major League Baseball has had their Field of Dreams game. Yeah. They have just announced a kind of – at first, we thought it was going to be called the Field of Dreams game, but now it's got a new name, and it's MLB at Rickwood Field, a tribute to the Negro Leagues. Wow. It's going to happen right there in Birmingham at Rickwood Field. It was like the last um, stadium that was active that Negro League players played in. Yeah. And I think at the time, it, it's no longer kind of in modern everyday use now, but it, it, right. by the time it shut down, I believe it was in the 80s or something like that, it was still kind of the, the oldest kind of working professional baseball field. And so, I mean, the history of the Black Barons as well started when Reeb Foster started the 
uh, first Negro National League in 1920, the Birmingham Black Barons were affiliated with that, but they were in, as you mentioned, the Negro Southern League. A lot of people don't know the Negro Southern League was kind of akin to the minor league. So they were kind of akin to AAA. Um, they ultimately made it to that first iteration of the Negro National Leagues in 1924. They only stuck around through management. They were kind of up and down, up and down. I think they had three stints in the Negro Southern League. But what most people, Paul, don't fully understand about the Negro Leagues, and they really were leagues. Rube Foster gets credit for kind of organizing these leagues and putting them under the Negro National League banner the first time in 1920, but they did it again. And what most people, when they think of the Kansas City Monarchs and the Homestand Grays or the Birmingham Black Barons, they're actually thinking of the second iteration, right, of the Negro National Leagues. And that really took off in, I want to say, around 1937 or so. Yeah. So and the Birmingham Barons were there. They they were they were for the most part a pretty successful team when it comes down to it. They actually won three pennants on their side, back to back pennants. Um they went back to back pennants in I wanna say yeah, 43 and 44, and then they won a pennant again in 1948. And guess what? They lost the actual Negro League World Series every time <laughs> to the same team, the Homestead Grays. Um but things that you would also be interested to know about the Birmingham Black Barons is they featured a young center fielder when they won the pennant in 1948 that I think most people have heard of by the name of Willie Mays. Mm -hmm. So Mays played for the Barons. Satchel Page played for the Barons. Mule Settle Settles, another Hall of Famer that's kind of in Negro League folklore, also played for the Barons. And a one that you may not think of, Country music legend Charlie Pride. Did you know this? Charlie no. Pride played for the Birmingham Black Barons. He actually <laughs> did. So That's wild. I had no idea. That, that is wild. But <laughs> when you think of this team and you think of the franchise, it really is, I think, a microcosm of what we think of when we think of the modern-day Negro Leagues, right? Rooted in the Deep South, um, you know, a lot of community support, star players, but they were never – ever in a financial footing that would put them in a place where they were kind of a you know a successful franchise if you will and that was most of the teams in the negro leagues even the most yeah. successful ones were never really in kind of financial stability so yeah. this team uh in birmingham would come up kind of up and down but they really have carved out a place in history um and and like i said they they featured hall of famers they featured some really good teams and they feature a lot of history, and Birmingham has done an amazing job, which you said, like with the uh, the Southern League Museum there as well. They really take pride, even in, if, like I said, you go down there today, and they really take pride in in letting people know that uh, Birmingham was one of the kind of pil pillars of the of the Negro Leagues. Well, and that was interesting to me when when we visited. So I was there in June. And we we visited the the museum and it was really interesting to me to to walk in and we met Frank Adams Jr., who is the curator, the the director there. And and he was talking to us about how this museum is basically telling the story of black baseball in Birmingham. Like that's the sort of central message. And then, you know, the other sort of aspects of the story are kind of ancillary to that. But it really did focus on the city of Birmingham. And I thought that that was was really interesting. And I didn't I didn't know. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I've been to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City three times. And, and you know, you hear about the, you know, Kansas City uh, as sort of central to the story, obviously, because that's where it's located and because the monarchs are 
a classic team. I'm a Pennsylvania guy. I kind of think the Homestead Grays might have been the greatest baseball team of all time ever in any well, league. They would they would argue there were certain years of the Grays. I can't remember specifically what year, but I do know with the Josh Gibson Leon Day um, years, there was yeah. one team that was considered the greatest Negro League team of all time, and it was a Homestead Grays team. Uh, and so you you may be right. You may I be do- right. You know, I so well, I mean, so this is sort of pertinent to this story, I think, because I, you know, here I am a white middle aged baseball fan, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's of note, I think, that a baseball fan like me, who, you know, I the story of the Negro Leagues to me, and I've said this before on this podcast, the story of the Negro Leagues to me. I it was surprising to me to learn that the story was not a story I, I mean yes it's obviously a story of discrimination and injustice but the stories that these museums tell are ones of successful uh, successful black communities successful black teams that that thrived in spite of these circumstances and for me now to know about a, a homestead grays team 80 years ago that played 80 years ago right and to say that might have been the best baseball team ever to play baseball I think speaks to the fact the resurgence of interest in these leagues or the the surge of interest in these leagues mm-hmm. in the last five years, right? And the fact well, that may- no, you I was you're bringing up an excellent point, Paul, because what you're describing is they're they're enterprises, right? They're they're mm-hmm. businesses. They were mm-hmm. the the interesting thing when you have conversations about really what happened with integration, right? They tell the story of of Jackie Robinson forty seven, mm-hmm. and then. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Larry Doby and Satchel Page is is the next two that come over, and they instantly know. We we know this. We know that as soon as that pipeline, that that kind of mythical color barrier broke, and I say it was mythical because a lot of people don't know. People will ask you, "Well, hey, what happened? Like, did the law change?" <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is absolutely not. The law didn't change. It was basically a legitimate gentle- gentleman's agreement between white owners and and what they called, you know, Major League Baseball, what they called, and they kept black players out for 60 years, right? And so Branch Rickey, the maverick that he is, and, you know, just to be frank as well, a lot of people didn't like Branch Rickey, (laughs) but the maverick that he is is like, no, we're going to, we're going to, you know, I've got to figure out ways to win the pennant and draw audience, right? (laughs) And so, you know, Branch Rickey does what he does and, and the rest is history. But one of the things that people often do tell and I'm glad you really highlighted in the way that you did Paul was they ran their teams not all the team owners a lot of people are also surprised to, to know that not all the team owners in the Negro Leagues were black right. they were white team owners in the Negro Leagues obviously yeah. the most famous uh, Kansas City Monarchs was owned by a white guy right not only did they have their own team principles right the team owners of the teams they had really in many ways their own sponsors they had their own kind of medical staff they had their own record keepers as best they could Mm -hmm. and so what we're looking at was basically a small business and the times were challenging that that's the other thing that in 2023 we tend to romanticize certain things and say oh you know why why did this break up well life was really hard (laughs) in the negro leagues they were playing sometimes four games in a day. They were yeah. playing double headers uh, in the morning and doing going, you know, driving miles in cars and then doing double headers in the evenings. They, so life was hard to make it work. So yeah. I, I do understand. But 
one of the things that Rube Foster really wanted, one of one of his dreams was to create a Negro Leagues that was so good that they felt the major leagues had to take at least some of their teams. They had to, like, merge. Mm-hmm. So that was Rube Foster's biggest um, – that's what he wanted to do. It wanted to be a come almost like an ABL NBA merger, if you will, and accept yeah. full teams. If if they had done that, then you would see, you know, today teams that were owned by you know black men and women yeah. and kind of kind of this generational path, right? That did not happen. Yeah. Uh, what did happen was Branch Rickey figured out a way to get Jackie Robinson over, and then kind of the talent drained. Uh, to the major leagues or migrated if you will to the major leagues yeah. and then the the negro leagues infrastructure they didn't take anything else they just took the talent and so the negro league structure overall did ultimately it was it was curtains they were they were really done by 53 54 yeah. 55 after yeah. jackie came over yeah the quick thing i'll tell you about jl wilkerson and branch ricky and i don't know if you've heard this story it's it's a fascinating story branch ricky the the player that everybody would have said at the time in kind of that mid early forties as the best player in the Negro leagues was Monty Irvin. Mm-hmm. It was not Jackie Robinson. Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson probably wouldn't have even been top fifteen to be honest with you. Right. Yet they knew obviously Jackie's history. He was you know UCLA, all the athletics, the military. So Jackie's profile was a profile that was really pretty acceptable right. the other thing that jackie had going for him that even jackie didn't know was that the owner of the monarchs jl wilkerson's a white guy yeah so at this point in time you know you're if you're negotiating with the new york eagles for monty Irvin, you're gonna have to pay compensation mm-hmm. to to get him to come over mm-hmm. effie man effie legendary big on compensation you're not going to just steal our players they're under contract right well branch ricky comes the dodgers come and literally poke jackie robson off a bus puts him in a car and takes him with him and the here's the only person that really could raise an issue with this is jl wilkerson who owns the team and has jackie under contract yeah well guess what jl's a white guy and the whole community is waiting yeah. At this point, they're waiting for this color barrier to break. Yeah. So J.L. Wilkerson, honestly, by being a white guy, could not say he could not be the person that stood in the way <laughs> of integration of baseball. And yeah. Branch Rickey knew it. Yeah. Branch Rickey knew it. He was basically <laughs> like, you don't have any leverage here. Yeah. And so that's what happened. They never paid compensation for Jackie yeah. Robinson, to my understanding. But the fact that J.L. Wilkerson was a white man who owned the team – really could not be seen as the person that stopped integration of baseball. Wow. Well, that's, you know, I, you've said so much here. There's like so much to unpack with all of this, right? No, no, no. It's awesome. I love it because it's such a fascinating story. Right. And I think I'd be curious to get your perspective on this because I feel like the level of interest in black baseball in recent years has correlated with other things that have happened in our society. Uh, Obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, civil unrest around the killing of George Floyd. I'm curious to I, I'm just curious to hear your perspective as as interest has grown in in recent years. What do you attribute that to? I'd probably say it was probably a little bit before 2020, just a little bit. I would probably say within, say, the last five years or so. Yeah. 
you saw some really interesting things in uh, amongst like black culture in in the way, for lack of a better term, you know, you, you mentioned the sweatshirt and, that, and the fitted cap, but in the way of fashion, mm. what we saw was this resurgence of Negro League par- apparel, Negro yeah. League hats, Negro League launches, Ebbetsville yeah. flannel, and all all of these folks, yeah. really yeah. kind of digging into the history books and saying. Oh, this is really cool. Yeah. Um, I would say even maybe before that, we mentioned him as well. And he, the, the man will, ne- he's the Hall of Famer and he will never get enough credit for what he's done. But I do think the way that Bob Kendrick put the museum yeah. on its footing in line with Major League Baseball. Yeah. And I do think that was happening kind of probably a little bit earlier than what we were mentioning with with George Floyd and, and yeah. civil unrest. Yeah. But he really took single, like not single handedly, but with him and his team yeah. really changed the trajectory of what the museum was and what the museum could be. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think by him doing that and the way that he, he did and positioning it in a way for people to really pay attention to it and elevate it. I do think you saw this kind of almost ripple effect of, you know, you know, new new apparel and products being released, more people taking interest in like, w- what is this? Like, what mm-hmm, is happening mm-hmm, here? Mm-hmm. And then you, I, I think there was just this kind of renewed interest in the history and the legacy and places like Birmingham to take mm-hmm. it back to them were in just such a great position yeah. to highlight a team like the Barons and what it meant through the history of baseball. And they've always had great pride in it. I think it's a little bit even easier now in some of these other seats. Like so Kansas City, Birmingham, a lot of those a lot of those places were already really um ingrained and in touch with the community and the culture and the legacy of the Negro Leagues. But now you're seeing things like when we were out in Seattle, you saw homage to the Seattle Steelheads. Right. No one's ever right. heard of No they one's ever heard for like of the three Steel- months. <laughs> right. No <laughs> one's ever heard of the Steelheads, but they have a Steelhead throwback night, right? Yeah. yeah. And so Things like that, like, you know, last year, I know the the Detroit Stars had throwback yeah. uniforms. The Pittsburgh Crawford had throwback uniforms. And so the Pirates wore the Crawford's uniforms and, and they yeah. auctioned them off. All of those things kind of allows you to say, especially as a young fan, hey, what is this? Why are, yeah. why are they wearing this uniform or what, yeah. you know, and, and it's and you know, the Indianapolis ABC. So it was really, yeah. really exciting. I will tell you personally, the reason I know so much about uh, certain Negro League teams is simply because I'm a huge, huge hat fan. I'm a oh. huge hat fan. Yeah. And they released Negro League. They I was I I was doing a series on hat releases that they had they had released a, a special Negro League pack, yeah. and I was doing two minutes live to camera on the history of each of these teams wow. based off of when the hats were released. And I, and I'll tell you, I did that. It was before 2020. I know, yeah. but I was, I was doing that and the feedback I was getting from people in the audience that was listening and learning about the history of the New York black Yankees or the Birmingham yeah. black Barons. They were saying, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a hat or a sweatshirt yeah. or so forth. And so I do think that we often talk about, and one of the reasons we talked about just the why I think things like the black baseball mixtape is important 
is people don't know what they're interested in until they really see it. Yeah. And once they see it, they can say, well, I want to learn more about that. And I do think over, like you said, I think over a groundswell of probably slowly but surely eight, eight years, five years and so forth. I think there's been much more interest in the Negro leagues in our, in our kind of our culture. And now what you do see post 2020 is major league baseball doing yeah. things like they're doing next year at Rickwood field. Yeah. That's though. And, and by anybody, like, that's the biggest stage you can get. Right. right. So I think, right. I think you're seeing more of that since 2020 yeah. more organizations embracing their history since 2020. And, and one of the things that did happen after 2020 is basically Every major league franchise, if you go on any major league franchise's website mm-hmm. and look up uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, yeah. they have what their efforts they have done since 2020. That was not right. a before 2020 thing. Yeah. And, and a lot of them do, especially the ones that have Negro League histories, yeah. they do harken back to that history, educate folks, and, and usually do some level of uh, promotion sometime in the year during their stadium. Well, and you phrased what I was trying to get at so much better than I was stumbling around with, but it's Major League Baseball playing a game in Rickwood Field as a tribute to the Negro Leagues. Yep. Ten years ago, you know, I I would I would have been like, what? I don't even know what that means. Like, what are you even talking about, right? And yep. and so now the this world that we live in and Birmingham, Alabama being so central to that in this story, I think is why I wanted to you know have this conversation when I was talking about this team on the podcast because it's it's fascinating and it's become like mainstream in a way that we have to be careful that we don't romanticize like you said right like i mean this is this was a a, an incredibly difficult time born of of injustice and discrimination and you know it's important that we're paying attention to it and telling the story but you know it has to be done in a a respectful way and i think that we are i think from my perspective as a white baseball fan, it feels like that's what's happening. Sure. But I, you know, I hope that that's actually the case. Yeah. I think proper context is always important. And, you know, we'd mention them and we'll talk about them every time we bring up the Negro leagues, but that's really the magic of Bob Kendrick, right? He's able to not only tell the challenges, but also tell the beauty of the Negro. And there's so much beauty. Mm-hmm. And the Negro mm-hmm. Leagues and what Rube Foster created and even mm-hmm. the leagues before that, because there were tons of leagues before that. And like we said, Rube Foster, the the father of the Negro Leagues, if you will, was the one that kind of put the biggest teams under one umbrella yeah. in, in Kansas City. But there's so many. If you if you do get a chance, go back and listen to Bob on your show. Um, <laughs> if you hear him talk about it and talk yeah. about it with such passion and he talks about it from a firsthand perspective of sitting, you know, right beside Buck O'Neill and having Buck yeah. O'Neill who is, you know, just every connection in baseball. It's, it's not six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's like two degrees of Buck O'Neill for <laughs> right. almost right. every black baseball player. Yeah. But there's so much beauty in the stories and so much beauty in that history. And one of the things, not every city, I will say not every city is able to capture it as well as Birmingham. And that's mm-hmm. important because between Rickwood Field, between the museum, the Negro Southern League Museum that's in Birmingham, between the other historic landmarks in Birmingham that really capture the civil rights movement, right? As as people people know, the 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 bus boycott led by young Martin Luther King Jr. took place in Birmingham, and and 
the early 50s, right? That's what, yeah. So all of this stuff, uh, Birmingham does a really good job of letting people know that this happened here, this is the history, and this is the legacy that we're standing on. On a lighter note, we talked before the interview, uh, you live in Richmond, Virginia, my former stomping grounds, home of the Richmond Spiders, where I went to school, home of the VCU Rams. And the VCU Rams, yeah. You're a VCU guy. I went to grad school at VCU. Of course, home to the Richmond Flying Squirrels for minor league baseball fans. That's, you know, they're they're one of the teams participating in the nine, uh, I believe, right? Yeah. They participated last year. So they last okay. year they participated in the nine. And I, I'm a squirrel super fan. I love to brag about them. So I will <laughs> tell you that they won uh, part of their participation in the nine, had them win like the community award for all minor league baseball last year. This year they've done a, a couple of things around honoring the history and kind of the civil rights history in Richmond through the team. And so this is the, I believe it's the third year this season will be the third year that they are having what they call legacy weekend Mm. in Richmond, Virginia for the Richmond flying squirrels. It honors the legacy of a group of civil rights heroes right here in Richmond from Virginia union university. It's the Richmond 34. They were 34 college and university students that integrated a very famous lunch counter in Richmond, a segregated lunch counter. I believe it was the Tallhammer's um, lunch counter in downtown Mm -hmm. Richmond. All 34 of them got arrested and it actually helped. Their case was a case that helped lead to the Civil Rights Act um, later later on in, in kind of litigation. So what Richmond did was, again, after, like you mentioned, after 2020, minor league baseball was all suspended, right? They're all on hiatus for a year. Yeah. And when they came back, they said they didn't want to go national. They wanted to honor their local heroes, their mm-hmm. local civil mm-hmm. rights here, heroes here in Richmond. They learned the story of the Richmond 34, and they actually started a scholarship fund, a Legacy 34 scholarship fund, and they retired the number 34 for all of the Richmond squirrels. So it's very interesting. There are two numbers in Richmond that are retired and it's 42 for Jackie Robinson and 34 for the Richmond 34. And so legacy weekend is a way for them to honor those. There's quite a few of them. that are still living Uh, ambassador. Elizabeth Johnson rice is, is the ambassador comes back every year, uh, does school programs with the Richmond flying squirrel. So this legacy program, not only is like I said, is it giving scholarships, it's uh, providing education to the community and the Richmond Flying Squirrels do an amazing job with it. That is so cool. I'm so happy to to hear that about the Flying Squirrels because I know that you know that that ballpark uh, it, uh, in desperate need of upgrades as it has been at certain points over the years. It's all, been... No, it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> I, I love the diamond. It's got charm, but it yeah. is it when when 2020, I believe it's down 2026. 25 yep. or 26 comes and the new stadium is here. Yeah. Everybody will be screaming hallelujah. Yeah. But it's even, you know, that notwithstanding, it's been such an important part of that community. And, you know, to know that they're telling these stories in such a meaningful way highlights too, which is the point we keep making about Birmingham here, that how intrinsically intertwined the history of America and the history of civil rights is with the history of black baseball, right? Like there's just no telling either of those stories without the other. And that's certainly highlighted in Richmond. And certainly as we've been talking about, you know, Birmingham on this episode is true there. So 
Cheats, thank you so much for coming on and, t- and talking with me. It's a long time coming. Where can people find you and your podcast and your website? Uh, you can follow Black Baseball Mixtape on every, everywhere podcasts are available. And then Instagram, Black Baseball Mixtape. We do have an X, I believe it is now. It's not Twitter anymore. It's an X oh, yeah. account that you can follow <laughs> as well. But my the, the main focus is the Instagram page, which is Black Baseball Mixtape. Black Baseball Mixtape. It'll be in the show notes. Cheats, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, buddy. It's an honor to be on. All right, everyone. Welcome back. It's time once again for Studio Simon Stumpers with Dan Simon of Studio Simon. Dan, how are you doing? I am fantastic. Looking forward to this one. Let's just jump right into the the question. This is going to be, this is a double header. All right. Um, So it's two questions today. So no extra charge. Okay. And the answer is Ernie Banks. (laughs) Let's ask two. And let's (laughs) start with the first one. For what type of baron were the original Birmingham baron's name? Were they A, coal barons? B, railroad barons, or C, steel barons? No, this is one. I've been on the schneid as we've been talking about. I I think it's like five in a row that I've missed. This is one that I actually, I think, know from my own human experience here that it was coal barons. Bingo. Give the man a cigar. So um, (laughs) you are off the schneid. Now, let's see if you can uh, make this a... um, you winning both ends of uh, today's twin bill. Before you start, I should say that I believe in my lifetime, the Phillies have never actually swept a doubleheader. I think that may not be true, but it feels true that every single time the Phillies play a doubleheader, they could be playing against St. Mary's Sisters of the Poor, and they will still split a doubleheader every time they play one. So uh, I am fully prepared emotionally for not sweeping this doubleheader. But I'm already off the schneid. So this is, if I get two in a row today, this is pure gravy. Well, I think you have a chance of getting this one because I think this is something that you will, as a baseball fan, you might've heard about. Okay. okay. So um, uh, there have been a lot of people that have uh, played for both the Birmingham Barons and the Birmingham Black Barons. Uh, Famously, Willie Mays played for the Black Barons. other players, you know, Jose Canseco, Ricky Henderson used to be a, uh, an Oakland A's affiliate. So, um, you know, they played for the Barons. But perhaps most famously, Michael Jordan played for the, the Barons in his one year of minor league baseball. That was back in 1994. And coincidentally, before your baseball paloozas were even a uh, twinkle in your, in your eye, um, I went on a six-day, six-game um, base minor league baseball road trip through the South, started in Louisville, Kentucky before I actually moved here, um, down to Nashville, Huntsville, which is now Madison, where the uh, Trash Pandas play, Knoxville, where the Tennessee Smokies now play outside of, but they were the Knoxville Smokies at the time. Um, I'm leaving one out, and, and the the southernmost were the Birmingham Barons. I'm leaving one out. and Chattanooga. I, thank you. That's what it was. Was it Chattanooga? All right. Um, interestingly, this, like I mentioned, this is back in 1994. All six of those stadiums no longer mm. 
either exist or if they do exist, they're not being played in by the major league team. Like I believe the one in in Birmingham is still being used, but not by the um, the Birmingham Barons who play in this wonderful new downtown um, ballpark there. So um, our question is regarding Michael Jordan and that year. So which current major league skipper was Michael Jordan's manager when he played for Birmingham in 1994? Was it A, Bruce Bochy, B, Dusty Baker, or C, Terry Francona? Now your, your eyes are going back and forth at your thinking. So apparently you don't know this immediately. I don't know it right off the bat. This Terry. was almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Terry um, Francona feels really right to me. And by the way, speaking of that road trip, you and I, we went on our own road trip that involved Birmingham, Alabama. And we saw a game at Rickwood Field with your Savannah Bananas. You created their logo. We also saw a Trash Pandas game. But I just I can't believe that we've made it this far into this stumper doubleheader without mentioning the fact that we saw a game at Rickwood Field. Major League Baseball, like days before we were there, said that they were going to play there next year uh, as as a, a, on a very special occasion that's been discussed on this episode. So we have also done some road tripping around Alabama and in particular in Birmingham. Um, getting back to the question, I'm going with Terry Francona. I think Terry Francona is right. You just, unlike your Philadelphia Phillies, you just took both <laughs> ends of, of today's doubleheader. So not only you're off the schneid, you're off the schneid times two. So congratulations. Oh. It was indeed Terry Francona. Man, that's, uh, you You sweep a doubleheader, even if the team you're chasing won that day, you still gain half a game in the standings. It's uh, it's a good feeling to sweep a doubleheader. We're, we're, this is this is the this is going to turn the season around for me i think well and and hopefully it's going to be a great start to in to a, a great day for you today go into it with the smile of knowing that you are doubly victorious and r keep riding that wave and i hope you have a great day and rest of your week and an even better weekend i should tell you dan that this may be the last time we ever speak because uh, for I celebrated a landmark birthday recently. And uh, as part of my gift, wildlife consultant Ranger Amy Burnett is taking me skydiving. Uh, and so if we never record another Studio Simon Stumper, it's been great knowing you. And thanks for all that you've done for Baseball by Design. It was, uh, yep, it was, it was great while it lasted, Paul. <laughs> and um, good it, luck with that. If the shoot opens, we'll see you next week. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs>